0: Welcome to Episode 154 with my guest, Dr. Jessica Dubron. Uh, This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DOCTOR. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads for medically (laughs) diagnosed... medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist, and this isn't a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go there, check it out, join the forum, or browse it. Uh, Read blogs by me and other people, mostly by other people. And uh take a survey or see how other people filled out surveys or uh, revealing their deepest, darkest secrets. And you can also support the show and support our sponsors. Um, uh, I've started putting up links there to uh to our sponsors. Um let's get into it. Uh before uh we get to the uh the interview with uh Dr. Jessica Dubron, uh, I just wanted to mention that this is one of those episodes that I recorded over a year ago, and it's always interesting um, when when it's an episode that's that sat on the shelf for a little while. It's interesting looking back and going, "Oh yeah, that's right. I was going through such and such when when I was doing that." And one of the th- two of the issues that that come up in hearing this ep- episode come back is one, I had not been educated or illuminated at all about uh the LGBT community specifically transgender um people and um I decided to keep my kind of uh clueless comments in there because um some of Jessica's uh explanations I thought were more important than the um cluelessness uh, the pain of my cluelessness about that and you know what I'm kind of proud that I I now know more about um terminology and um and the inner lives of people who uh, who don't fit into a neat binary definition of uh, gender or sexuality. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, I apologize in, in this, and I've hit my apology quota uh, already out of the gate five minutes in. Uh, I was on mirtazapine when I was doing this episode. I'm no longer on it. And one of the side effects was it made it sometimes really hard to form a sentence and to collect my thought um, so if you hear that, uh, that was the, that was one of the other drugs that I was on. Anyway, uh, let's kick it off with uh, a couple of surveys. This is from uh, the survey that I love to open the show with, which is a struggle in a sentence. Um, this one was filled out by um, person, a woman who calls herself Lyra and Bon Bon about her depression. She writes, the world is horrible and my body feels impossibly heavy about her anger issues. No one knows how much effort I put into not hitting people. About her autism, I might as well be an extraterrestrial for all the ways I cannot understand or properly interact with humans. And um, about her picky eating, which to me sounds like it might be you know, OCD-ish. Uh, if something is not the way I like, then it is so gross to me that I feel physically sick at the idea of eating it. Uh, same survey filled out by Tara about her noise intolerance. She writes, a phantom pain I cannot itch, like nails scratched on a chalkboard, but it won't stop. Um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself gross. Um, so you know she's teeming with with uh, with uh, confidence and self-love. Um, about her depression, like no hug is ever going to be enough to blunt the emptiness. Boy, do I know what that feels like. Um, about being abused, sexual abuse from grandfather. How could you turn your perversion into my shame? That is one of the deepest and most profound sentences I have ever read. Thank you for sharing that, and I'm so sorry um, that you have to live with the uh, with the pain of that. But hopefully, you're you're getting help in- on your road to healing. Uh same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself. by, by the way, ninety percent of the surveys on today's show were filled out by um females. And um a little part of me is like, oh no, am I becoming you um, know am I becoming an Oprah show? Not that Oprah's bad. I think Oprah's an awesome person and her show was was awesome. But um I don't know. There's just something when I see a a show that doesn't have men in it, it just always makes me kind of worry that, oh, is this something where they um, go and and bash on men or I don't know. I just had to, I had to share that, that fear with you. But I also love that I'm getting to know the the inner lives of of women um, so much doing this, especially reading the surveys and, and interviewing people. Boy, I am really running at the mouth. Um, oh, I'm over my quota. I take that back. Fuck you. This is filled out by ashamed, and she writes about her love addiction. I want the I want the love that you give, but I can't stand the rest of you. God, that is so good. Uh, this is filled out by a guy. Yay. And uh, about his depression, it's like being surrounded by an invisible quicksand of malaise, self-loathing, and douchebaggery, and every particle of your being is begging you to just sink into it. I love, by the way, uh, that era, uh, the advent of douchebaggery. We all remember that. Uh, it was actually the day after the first TV was invented, and some some guy said smugly, I don't own a TV. Uh, About his anxiety, he writes, uh, knowing the normal, proper way to interact with people but becoming so full of this physical manifestation of awkwardness and self-doubt that the only thing you can think of is how quickly you can escape. relate to that one. Uh, This is from Brave Girl Living who writes about her anorexia. He reached down my throat, grabbing my vocal cords in a stone-cold grip, ripping forth my voice, muting me. All the while, letting me believe this was my choice to be silenced. Uh, and about her cutting, they are now just scars of emotion, emotion that was simply too big for someone obsessed with being too small. Wow. Um, this was, and this is the last one of the uh, struggle in a sentence uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself, letting go is fucking hard. About her bulimia, relief, intimate, gratifying, then fucking chaos about her anorexia, deeply focused, no room left for anything else, perfect, and about her codependency, insidious, exhausting. And I just wanted to read you a couple of these. These are from, these are excerpts from the, I shouldn't feel this way survey. And one of the questions is is if you had a time machine, but couldn't change anything, you could just go forward or backward and observe things. How would you use it? Um, Somebody says, I would like to visit the ancient Greeks. I find the dawn of philosophy to be an interesting subject. Then maybe go see some cowboys. Um, somebody else said, I would like to watch the moments in which great inventors were finally able to achieve success after many failures. I'd also like to see the Buddha when he decided to change his life and journey towards enlightenment. I wonder if right before that happened, he just sighed and went, well, that was fucking bullshit. Uh This one, uh, the person says, see myself reacting to my parents arguing as a child to understand myself better. Uh, Somebody else, ugh, I don't think I'd want to go back and observe my childhood. Um, Another person, I'd be at a Hitler speech and follow him around for a day. I've always had a fascination with that horrible man and the way he propagated his cause. I'd like to see him masturbate. (laughs) You know, I can't disagree with those. I cannot disagree with those. Um, now oh, this one kind of breaks my heart. I would observe my father's suicide, try to figure out what he was thinking before he did the deed. And then, uh, if the time machine comes with the spacesuit, I would like to see the beginning of the Earth, and then watch Hitler masturbate.: Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds..
1: cried like an animal it makes me so mad at myself that i do that
0: the burden of perfectionism
1: and that's when i got to therapy
0: let's talk about that so i was like
1: fuck it i'm alive i don't give a
0: shit about anything you are a shining example of what is best about human beings i'm worried that the uh, russian militia is coming over the hill i know that uh but uh, alice how you feeling i'm pretty good Pretty good. Like <laughs> <laughs> i'm here with jessica dubron and uh she is do you do you have your degree yet?
1: I do. I actually just passed my final defense, so I am now Doctor Jessica DuBron. Uh
0: so you have a doctorate in uh, Clinical Psychology. Clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Uh
0: you're a friend of Brian who is a who is a listener who had suggested you as um as a guest to possibly talk about your life, possibly talk about your um what you've done in getting your degree and the people that you've interacted with um, and I got the feeling from our email that you'd pr- you'd prefer to kind of keep your a lot of the d- details of your personal life um, private
1: yeah you know I've, I've thought about this a lot since you sent me the email telling me that you like when guests get private sometimes but I I, I'm still unsure of how comfortable I feel with that because I think it's really important for the future if I work with a client that they can't just, you know, look up this podcast and hear all about my deepest, darkest secrets. That could really impact my relationship with the client. So
0: Yeah, and and I think it's important to point out that it's that it's the difference the the for those of you that are going, Well, if you expect your client to do that, <laughs> why can't the therapist do that? Because it taints how the client interprets mm-hmm. the space that is being created by the therapist. It colors.
1: Absolutely, and you know I've worked a lot with what we what I call high risk youth, or what the com- the mental health field called ha- calls high risk youth. And
0: I call them troublemakers.
1: <laughs> so it's about it's like the eighteen to twenty four year old population that have had a lot of trauma that you know maybe ended up on the streets way too early, have issues with substance abuse. And when working with those clients, boundaries are so important, especially because they didn't have boundaries oftentimes growing up. So if I'm starting to divulge really personal things to them, or even if they're able to just find out really personal things about me, that can kind of blur the boundaries that I'm trying to model.
0: Yeah, that makes makes perfect sense to me. Speaking of uh, at-risk youth mm-hmm. and um, boundaries, I was in the bookstore this last weekend and I always find myself drawn to the biography section and um, just one title just kind of struck me. It's called Runaway Girl mm-hmm. and is written by uh, a woman named um, Carissa Phelps and she ran away from home at 12 and it's I'm, I'm only about halfway through the through the book but it's it's just amazing what kids go through when they when they run away from home, first of all, amazing what they 're running away from the mm-hmm. the lack of safety is just so heartbreaking um, and i know and I know i've had that in in my life so it 's not like i don't know what it's like to not feel safe in your own home, but for kids that actually run away from home it's really fucking not safe yeah. can you can you talk about um Where would be a good place to start? Because that's a subject that I I would like to to talk about, these kids that just go, I can't stay here anymore.
1: Well, a lot of my experience with kids who said I can't stay here anymore were kids in the LGBT community. I uh, worked with a youth center, and a lot of the people that would go there would go there because they were beaten or just so severely discriminated against for coming out or in their own family in their own family
0: there are a few things that are as heartbreaking as that mhm it it, just, it leaves me speechless how, how you could i suppose the you know the the parents it's just an ignorance that they think it's a choice on the part of the child but um talk talk about that um, what those kids are like when they when they come in what's a, are there any particular cases that you can talk about you, obviously mm-hmm. retaining their anonymity um, mm-hmm. but
1: well one case does come to mind this was a uh, I think he was about twenty one when I started seeing him and he grew up in a really interesting situation. He grew up in kind of a rough part of East L.A., uh, Hispanic. And he grew up in a very poor family, very traditional family. And I think the word traditional is so euphemistic, basically meaning a homophobic family. And um, he didn't have a father in the house. He felt like he couldn't really be himself. He ended up joining a gang. And really joining a gang, we uncovered because he wanted big brothers, he wanted family. He didn't he didn't really care about um any of like the overblown arguments with other gangs that they would get into. He didn't care about that. He just wanted to be accepted and cared about. So, he um didn't ever let them know about his um sexual orientation, and he really just kind of tried to bury that part of himself. Eventually, he decided That he was, he moved away from that neighborhood and he started exclusively dating transgender women. Transgender woman is someone who is biologically born a male but identifies themselves as a woman. So he started exclusively dating transgender women and would not consider himself gay when we started seeing, uh, when we started doing therapy together. And he had been so ridiculed, so uh, made to feel worthless and not a real man because of because of his sexual identity in growing up that he by his
0: family by his
1: family by the people in his neighborhood
0: did he had he revealed his sexuality or was he effeminate and everybody kind of was like oh this this kid's gay he
1: wasn't he, he wasn't outwardly effeminate um And in fact, I think he worked very hard to overcompensate by joining a gang, by kind of being this real tough guy. But what he would do, which was really interesting, was he would make these little comments hoping that his mother would understand what he was trying to tell her. Mm. So he couldn't quite say to her, Mom, I'm gay. He would just make little comments about how, you know, I'm not like, uh, I'm not so you know, into most of the girls at school or he'd make these little kind of test comments and he would always get a terrible reaction. So it was pretty clear to me his mother knew and he knew his mother knew, but it was kind of this mental game he played with himself where in his yeah, mind. They were
0: Catholic. <laughs> that is such a- I can't come right out and express my needs. So and you can't come right out and tell me. No, so we're just both going to beat around the bush through passive, uh, aggressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's what that makes for a great drama, uh, to watch and in, in movies. That, all that subtext, but fucking horror to, yeah. to grow up with because you learn to not trust your integrity and you right. learn to not trust what other people are saying and try to guess what they're saying, which is fucking crazy making. Right. So go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: No, and, and um, what what was really i think so difficult for him about it is he ended up with this kind of phenomenon called cognitive dissonance where he knew his mother knew and had rejected him but he also held this belief that his mother didn't know and wouldn't reject him so he kind of drove himself crazy with those two conflicting beliefs he also had the belief that he was gay because he you know he would go to this youth center that um was an lgbt based youth center, he would hang around with other people who were in the LGBT community. But then that he wasn't gay because he dated transgender women. So, he was he was a very tortured soul.
0: Do you think he dated the transgender women because it was because that was what he wanted more than anything or because that was a compromise on his part that allowed him to say no you're not gay?
1: You know, that question is so interesting, and I'm not sure I can give you a a definitive answer to that, because I've wondered a lot about what makes somebody attracted to transgender women.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, This is probably going to sound like a a totally ignorant old fogey, but is the word transvestite uh, 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 politically incorrect?
1: It's not politically incorrect, but it's not applicable to what we're talking about. A transvestite is typically... And, you know, sometimes I get a little confused on my definitions. But as far as I understand, it's a straight male who dresses up, you know, who dresses in women's clothing. Oh, okay. Eddie Izzard, I I believe, would be. okay.
0: So a trans transgendered woman would be um, uh, a man who dresses up as a woman, but also uh, who's who enjoys the company of men, the sexual whose sexual preference is male.
1: No, actually. No? <laughs> um,
0: I'm going to need to flowchart this.
1: Yeah, I, it does get very complicated, and especially when you you start to get into pronouns, it, it can get really, it can get rough. But
0: and no wonder those people have felt those people couldn't have picked a worse <laughs> phrase. No wonder people whose whose sexuality and gender identity doesn't fit into neat boxes. No wonder they have felt so excluded because. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm trying to understand them. I'm trying to find the right words right. to it. Imagine how they're treated by people that mm-hmm. don't care and even have hostility towards them, what that is like trying to go through life, getting the, the basic thing, which we all want, is to just to be heard and understood and accepted for who we are. That's right. got to be horrible.
1: My mother always said that all we really want is a witness to our life yeah mm-hmm. on on kind of a related tangent did you hear about this recent news story of a woman in tennessee a transgender woman in tennessee who had officially you know changed all her info her social security or, or, or whatever to female and went to the dmv to kind of get the final piece of the puzzle get her driver's license changed to female and they refused so what she did and i think this is awesome and so brave. She went right outside of the DMV and took off her shirt. Hmm. Promptly, police were called and she was arrested. Genius. Yeah.
0: Genius. Yeah. I love it. So getting back to the, mm-hmm. the clarification.
1: Yeah. So basically, someone who is transgender, it's nothing to do with your sexual orientation. There are transgender women, meaning Biological men who end up transitioning to, um, to being female who end up with other females,
0: mm-hmm. which I think can
1: be really hard for some people to understand. But basically, it's, it's when someone feels as though they were born in the wrong body, that, you know, their brain and, and, and there is some research that confirms this is true, that that you really your brain can tell you that you're a woman and it just doesn't match what your physical manifestation is.
0: Which has to be such a yeah. such a load to carry,
1: oh yeah, yeah, I you know, when I was working with high risk youth, probably the most heartbreak I felt was when working with people in the transgender community and seeing what they go through, and you know I, there's one transgender girl that I worked with. Really intelligent, insightful, funny, the kind of person who should have no problem getting a job, got hired somewhere. And when she went to go do all her official, uh, like turn in her, uh, all the official stuff you turn in when you Mm -hmm. you get a job, they saw that she was actually born a he. Mm -hmm. Done. Wasn't allowed to work there anymore. Was fired. Fired before she started.
0: If you are listening to this podcast and you live in the Southern California area or you're planning to come to the Southern California area and you um, are transgendered or intersex and you would like to be a guest on the show, please contact me because I've been I've been trying to find guests um, that have had to experience this or are experiencing this. um, And I would love to hear your your story. So email me at mental at gmail.com and we can uh, we can talk some more but um, their stories are so miss i don't know misunderstood underreported um, and it doesn't have to be that way
1: you know what's what's really heartbreaking also and i wrote a paper about this while i was in school is how hiv has really spread like wildfire through the transgender community especially or pretty pretty much the male to female transgender community, and a big part of the reason is because they can 't get hired they can 't get jobs, and so they are given little alternative but to turn to the street and you know work as prostitutes
0: talk talk about um, were you done with that example of that of that person uh the hispanic uh
1: former gang member. Former gang member? I, 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 yes.
0: Okay. Okay. I didn't know if there was anything more that you wanted to add about his thing. Um, Give me, give me some other um, case uh, examples. um, Maybe some that involve them having to uh, go to the, go to the streets. And how, how do they, um, how do they turn their lives around? Do they?
1: Uh Uh-huh. So, One common story, like I was saying, is somebody tries to get a job, has, you know, works with, you know, the various kind of uh, agencies that will help you get a job, but because they're, we're still talking about transgendered youth. so. You know, it's hard enough to get a job. It's hard enough to get a job when you don't have work experience. It's hard enough to get a job when you're 17, 18, and you don't have work experience, when you're living on the street, when or living in a shelter, maybe at best living in, you know, some rough kind of low-income housing situation. You don't have a car. But when you're transgendered on top of that, it's just exponentially challenging. And... um a lot of a lot of the youth that I would work with because they didn't have money, they didn't have health insurance, they couldn't, you know, necessarily access the hormone therapy that they wanted, so they would be taking hormones on the street and they, you know, were very uncomfortable in their own skin. So they would try to get a job, have no luck, want so badly to be able to transition into the body they feel like they should have been born in and see so many people around them working on the street as prostitutes. So oftentimes they would start with the intention of, you know, doing it for a really brief amount of time, always using a condom, and that plan wouldn't oftentimes it, it wouldn't oftentimes go according to plan.
0: I would imagine often like the drug dealer, mm-hmm. you you know, I'm just going to do this for a little bit and then I'm going to get out. But you get used to the money, then you get to your bills are getting paid and. Mm-hmm. It's convenient. It may be soul-crushing, but it's convenient.
1: You know, one thing I heard uh, several times, which was really interesting, I'd never understood this concept before, and I heard this from that um, former gang member I was telling you about, is that there is a real addiction to this kind of subversive, fast-money lifestyle. And it, it was really hard for me to understand at first what was going back to the example I gave earlier of the, the former gang member of, you know, he seemed to want so much to have a kind of above board life to have, you know, a comfortable home to, you know, he envisioned having a partner and it was really hard for me to to kind of what is that disconnect between what he wants, the plans that we disgust for him and him not doing it. And we finally figured out that he is addicted to that adrenaline, that dopamine that gets released every time he also was into dealing drugs. So every time he would, you know, make a lot of money really quickly and get away with it.
0: That makes makes sense to me and uh, if you uh, for those of you that have listened to the uh, episode with the escort uh, Lilith that we did she had a has a great day job she is an escort because she enjoys having a monetary value placed on how attracted people are to her it's a rush for her
1: and it's also something concrete right and when if you if you feel like you're worthless what you know a seemingly great way to get confirmation that not only are you not worthless, but here is concrete proof that you're worth something.
0: Yeah. If I weren't married, if I were single, and women, you know, a woman said to me, can I pay you, uh, you know, $200 to have sex with me, I would probably do it. Mm -hmm. I would probably, unless I was completely repulsed by her, my ego would feel so validated by somebody wanting to pay me money to do something like that so Mm -hmm. then you put somebody in the in the crunch of having to make rent you're hungry you're cold you're tired you're lonely Mm -hmm. everybody around you is doing it
1: and then also add to that you feel uncomfortable and insecure about Your gender You're in maybe in the middle of a transition. And, you know, one of the biggest fears I would hear about from, you know, I I primarily I should preface this by saying I primarily work with uh, transgender females was this idea that they wouldn't pass, that they, you know, that people would stare at them or think that they looked strange. So then to actually have somebody want to sleep with them and make them feel desired was absolutely intoxicating. And that would often lead them to forego the condom. You know, they they wanted to be this perfect um, feminine ideal to the john. I've heard statistics that, um, you know, about 40% of the uh, transgendered male to female people, the transgender women in Los Angeles have HIV. Wow. And you know I've heard a lot of differing statistics on it, but it's a it's a pretty huge amount. I would say that the majority of the ones I worked with had HIV or discovered they had mm-hmm. HIV over the course of the time I was there.
0: And there, we're not going to say his name um, because I don't want to get sued. But there is a very high profile celebrity mm-hmm. who frequents. Yes. Who is known? Uh, can you talk? Uh, about that without having me sued.
1: <laughs> okay. Um, yes, there is a very high-profile celebrity that really enjoyed the company of the transgender prostitutes in the West Hollywood area. And it was so interesting how... The male to females. Right. Born born male identifies female and, and gender expressed as female. Mm-hmm. And, and if you brought up his name to anyone, any, any of these... Uh, transgendered females. They knew him or knew somebody that had slept with him. You know, I uh, would co-run groups at this youth center for the LGBT um, community. And sometimes he, he would come up in conversation and they would laugh about it. You know, that he was such a, such a staple of the scene. Yeah.
0: And was he, was he somebody, would he, would he pay them well at least?
1: Well, I can only tell you the rumors as I was obviously not there during transactions. Um, I don't know too much about what happened on average in terms of payment, but I do know that he had one really rough, really, um, what's the, a tough situation with a, a transgender woman he slept with who felt like he, he had ripped her off and she apparently tried to sue him. There, It was a very dramatic situation. So, Apparently, he wasn't always good in his word, but...
0: Well, that's a shock for somebody that is exploiting a teenager on the streets. <laughs> that's very heartbreaking. Yeah. That's heartbreaking Unexpected, to hear. really. Uh, and part of me feels a little slimy for even bringing that subject up. Um, Why? Maybe I'm just trying to make the podcast more interesting, or maybe I'm trying to, you know, satisfy my own National Enquirer part of my brain. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I feel kind of greasy asking that 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 question, bringing celebrity into it, because I I feel like part of this podcast, part of the mission of this podcast is is to dispel the the addictions and help help break down the myths that these things that our culture is addicted to. Um, you know that celebrity will, if you can become a celebrity, you'll be happy. If you can get enough money, you'll be happy. Um, that you should never turn your back on your family under any circumstances, um,
1: that one is not true, definitely not true
0: that you should never turn your back on your family under any circumstances
1: oh that is a very damaging belief
0: it is mm-hmm. and I think organized religion may be the worst culprit in in terms of uh keeping that sick myth um, alive, and a lot of people wind up drinking themselves, drugging themselves, sexing themselves, cutting themselves mm-hmm. um, into a very small, sad lives or even even death because they, they won't put that option on the table because they think it makes them a bad person. Right. Oh, uh, you know what that sound means? Time to give our sponsors some love. And one of our sponsors for today is Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Uh, for free, Trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code DOCTOR. Uh, Squarespace is a really uh, amazing site. I've, I've used it. Uh, I actually uh, subscribed to it. I wanted to uh, try it out as I do all the products that uh, that I endorse on the show. And I had a really easy time putting together a... Um, a website of my dog pictures and you can go check it out. It's uh paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com and it took me about an hour to u- upload what must have been like I don't know 15 or 20 very high resolution pictures. Um, Squarespace is super easy to use. It's uh it's drag and drop. They have all kinds of templates. Um and a new thing they have now um, with all three of their platforms— their personal, professional, and business platforms—is uh, commerce functionality. Uh, that means that literally every Squarespace customer can now begin selling products online. And each plan has a range range of uh, functionality in terms of SKU numbers and integrations with uh, third-party software. Um, but it's uh, the support at Squarespace is great. They got a team there that is uh, they're 24/7 and um, know you, you don't get a you know a phone line uh, where you got to press numbers and talk to a computer and uh, the other cool thing is it's a, it's a free trial so you can try putting a website together and if you find it uh, to your liking then it's just eight bucks a month to, uh, to have it go live and that includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year so yeah check it out uh, Squarespace uh, for a free trial and 10% off go to squarespace.com and use the offer code doctor also want to give some love to our, uh, our sponsor, Daily Burn. It is the online website that has uh, a huge, huge variety of online workout videos uh, with a variety of programs. Uh, my dog loves it. The other dog loves it. From uh, Tabata to interval training to yoga, it's, uh, it's really convenient. You can work out uh, with or without equipment with programs ranging from 15 minutes to an hour. Or you could work out. You could sign up and you could work out until you die. You could do that, and that would actually, you'd be getting the best bang for the buck because there would be, uh, I bailed out of that bit. Anyway, you can access Daily Burn uh, from anywhere. Uh, You can connect across multiple devices like Roku, iPad, iPhone, and soon uh, PS3 and Xbox. And just for mental illness happy hour users, you can get the first 30 days free when you go to dailyburn.com slash hour. And uh, our former guest and friend of mine, Megan Parkansky, has started doing it and and loves it. And, um, yeah, Daily Burn, the best fitness anywhere. So what what do you get from working with these kids? Talk about a typical day in your life of dealing with these at-risk kids.
1: Well, you know, I should preface this by saying I've, I've always been really drawn to crisis work. Before I worked with this population, I worked for the Department of Mental Health and what's called PMRT, which is the Psychiatric Mobile Response Team. So basically, if somebody was suicidal or homicidal, I would go out there with a partner and figure out what to do.
0: Holy fuck. <laughs> Holy fuck. So you're an adrenaline junkie.
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And uh, I've tried to basically turn a lot of the things that could potentially be very damaging for me, like my addictive personality, my love of adrenaline and dopamine, and try, and try to turn it into something positive. But yes, and I, I think I, I work best under a crisis as well.
0: You feel like things slow down for you in, in, a, in a crisis and, and become more clear, or you just like the um, intensity?
1: I think it's a combination. You know, I think some people are, are marathon runners. Some people are sprinters. I'm a, I'm a sprinter. And uh, I, I like that feeling of going into a situation, not knowing what you're going to find and kind of putting the the pieces together and it being really important to do so. I think there's an ego to it as well. That when, you know, I've done long term therapy before I used to work at a community clinic and there definitely are rewards to doing long term therapy but when you can be there for somebody at the moment when they're about to kill themselves there is something that just from an ego perspective i've had to admit is appealing
0: yeah how could it how could it not be how mm-hmm. could you not go home and lay your head on your pillow and feel that your life had more meaning
1: yeah you know, even when I first started working in this field, the very first thing I did was I worked with children who had autism and other developmental delays. But I worked in the early intervention part of that, which is one and a half to three years old. And people would say, you know, I'd have to change diapers sometimes as, as part of you know, being a therapist. And people would you know, think it was just insane that I, I enjoyed the work so much. But I got that ego thing because at one and a half to three, our brains are so malleable. So, I felt like I was able to really make an impact so that's that's the ego part of what has drawn me to a lot of the work I've done. Um, i
0: 've done I was just thinking of uh, a book that i 'm reading when you use the word malleable malleable. Um, they use this metaphor of when you 're born you 're like molten gold, and you can either be poured into a beautiful piece of jewelry or a golden bedpan. <laughs> we do not have to remain that thing that we're molded into. Right. We can melt ourselves down again and be molded into something different. And, mm-hmm. and I thought that was a beautiful um, metaphor for us not being broken because I think a lot of times people think I'm broken. And mm-hmm. I think very, very, very few people are ever beyond help completely. Would you Would you agree?
1: I would agree with that. You know, I, I think that the truth is, just like when you learn a language when you are growing up, it's going to be easier. It's going to come more naturally than when you try to learn a language at 40. It doesn't mean you can't learn the language at 40. It doesn't mean you can't rock the language at 40. Mm-hmm.
0: So how do you get through to somebody who is convinced that they were born a bedpan? And they're going to die a bedpan.
1: Well, the part of it is through the relationship you build with them. You know, for some people, just having somebody sit with them in the room, being completely present, showing empathy and compassion can be a a real start to feeling like maybe they are a person of value. Look, there's another person who sits here so present with me, seems to care about what I'm saying. You know, maybe what I'm saying has some meaning. So I think it it really starts for people who kind of come into it feeling so broken, so um, worthless. I think it really starts with the relationship.
0: So what is the first stage that you begin to see progress? What's the first change that that you see when somebody, let's say you got an at-risk youth coming in there Mm -hmm. that feels like they're... Well, they're dirty and they're wrong, and they're you know all the shit that their maybe their family or society pumps into their into their head right what 's the what's the first sign to you that i'm making some progress with this person
1: They show up for the second session <laughs> and
0: then what 's the next one after that
1: well showing up for the session after that. But aside from that, in terms of within the session, that they start to talk to you, especially with this population, they start to talk to you a little bit more like you're just that you're another human being. And this is a new experience as opposed to here's an authority figure that I'm going to regurgitate my story for. And that would happen a lot. I would feel like they had gotten their narrative down so well for, you know, people in the foster system, people at, you know, at the shelters that when they would come to me, I would just be, you know, the next person in line to hear their sob story. So when that kind of shatters and all of a sudden you're just two human beings sitting there present with each other and they really tell you what's gone on, that's a, that's a a big sign.
0: And what are the signs that they're really telling you what went on? Do you see emotion in their faces and their voices? Is it the words that they use? Is it their body language?
1: You know, sometimes it's the absence of certain words. For example, when I would, you know, work with one of the, the high-risk youth uh, kids and they would use so much so much of like the vernacular that we use in the mental health field. And, you know, talk about, you know, my last my last pre doc psych intern told me such and such. There's something about it that feels like um, that doesn't feel authentic. I think it's when they kind of drop using the words that they've um, adopted from the mental health field and start to what they're gonna, It seems like what they're saying is, is a little bit more off the cuff, that they are really listening to your questions and answering them in real time, if that makes any sense.
0: So it, it would it be fair to say it becomes more of a conversation and less of a, an interrogation by the system?
1: Abs- that's a great way to put it. Yeah. You know, I think sometimes you don't always see the emotion from them. You, you know, sometimes they have such a wall up that you know to showing emotion equals weakness equals powerlessness showing emotion equals me being you know getting beaten up for acting gay but sometimes you can see the emotion in their body language in their word choices in the way that you know they they're a little sad when the session's over
0: that's got to be a beautiful feeling when you get a sense that this person is going to miss you
1: yes it is. It's a, it's a good feeling when you know that you've built a relationship with somebody that's healthy, that had good boundaries. And for a lot of these kids, when I you know, left working for Children's Hospital, they hadn't had a parting of ways that wasn't an abandonment. So being able to end a relationship, but we had talked about it for months and months ahead of time. They were prepared. And it wasn't me abandoning them, but just we both kind of move on. That felt good.
0: Is that emotional for you when that happens?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Do you ever cry in front of them?
1: I don't think that... I think I've gotten teared up a couple of times, but... I am pretty good at, at not doing that.
0: Do you try to suppress it? Is that something in the field that is encouraged to try to not show? Um...
1: You know, this is, I think, a, a personal choice. And you obviously don't want to like break down and sob all the time with right. your clients. But there is a danger to suppressing your emotions.
0: So if a tear rolled down your face in your last session with somebody who you've made great progress with, that wouldn't be a, a, a no-no in no. in your field?
1: No. It, it, I think the but, thing that I... if you
0: threw yourself at their feet and said, don't <laughs> yeah. leave, my life has no meaning?
1: That could be what we call contraindicated, yes. <laughs> um, I think that what I try to be mindful of when, in terms of expressing emotion is that they don't need to bear any of my burden and they have enough of their burden I don't want them to walk away worrying about me and I think a lot of these kids who grew up taking care of their parents being hyper vigilant about how people in their family were feeling if they feel like I'm hurting that they're going to take that on for themselves
0: yeah that makes that makes perfect sense give me some snapshots if you can Mm -hmm. of breakthroughs that you've seen happen especially with these kids that mm-hmm. that were living out on the street the, the high risk youths
1: mm-hmm. okay well going back to that first case I brought up with the um, the former gang member who dated exclusively transgender women I think it was a it was a huge breakthrough when he came to the point where he was able to fully own his sexual orientation and It didn't kind of have an immediate justification or a qualifier, but just I'm a gay man and that's fine. I think that was a pretty big breakthrough. Uh, You could kind of see uh, the weight lifted when he also, with him, there was quite a few breakthroughs with him when he realized that his happiness and his progress wasn't contingent contingent upon his mother's approval of a sexual orientation or uh, anything. That was a pretty, pretty good one. One of the more intense breakthroughs that really stick out in my mind of the time I was doing that work was with a patient who um, actually had what's called narcissistic personality disorder. And th- that can be really hard to treat. Personality disorders in general are pretty uh, infamous for being difficult to treat.
0: And, th- and that one is, is pretty rare.
1: It's pretty rare, but not so rare in this population. Because if you think about
0: show business,
1: (laughs) maybe, but if you think about what causes personality disorders, you know, and we don't have a definitive answer to that, but it's pretty, uh, the consensus is that having intense childhood trauma, neglect, abuse is a pretty good recipe, right? So I worked with um, this one guy who, when we uncovered what, what happened in his childhood, and I do have to say he was on, on the milder end of the spectrum, you know, the personality disorders definitely have a spectrum and somebody who just barely qualifies for the diagnosis has a much better prognosis, obviously, than somebody who has every criteria. So in his childhood, his father had, um, so he had a couple of sisters who were half sisters. They, they had different fathers, but the same mother his father had raped both of his sisters. And at one point, he had even walked in on his father when he was maybe about four years old, raping his sister. Wow. Yes. Very, very intense. And he... This was a really difficult subject for him because his father was actually in jail. He hadn't seen his father since he was, you know, his preteen, preteen or 13 years old. But what was really difficult was for him to reconcile that with the fact that he, you know, loved his father, would often talked about how much his father loved him. He was the light of his father's life. And one really difficult realization that eventually we got to and which really kind of rocked his, his world for a while was that there was kind of a when you're a child, you don't process things the same way as an adult. You don't see things in a way that makes sense to us now. But it's perfectly understandable for a child whose father is, you know, raping the other siblings to feel like, what's wrong with me? And why am I not getting that physical love and affection? And it's a very uncomfortable, un, you know, kind of icky thing, but it's completely normal and understandable. And when he was able to get to the point where he could see that, he almost felt neglected or... What's wrong with me? Because
0: that kid doesn't think of that as rape. Because you don't know enough about Mm -hmm. sex at that age. You just think, my dad's doing something with my sister that doesn't involve me. I would imagine.
1: Right. And, you know, he said he knew that there was something not right about it. But he... But it was a closeness that he craved that he didn't get. And what that turned into was him actually idealizing his relationship with his father, talking about how much his father adored him, and him having this kind of attitude towards his sisters, like, well, they seduced my father. They took advantage of him.
0: Wow.
1: Right, right.
0: Wow. So did he grow up then being a misogynist? Or just towards his sisters? I mean, how did he break through that? What? Wow, that is fucking... Deep. <laughs> yes. That is so deep.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if I would necessarily say he was a misogynist. I would say that he, he definitely viewed himself on a different plane than pretty much anybody else. The only person I ever heard him idealize the way he um, idealized himself was his father. And some of the time me. Some of the time very much not me. But... He um I think he he really thought that he he would often refer to people as um commoners as peasants really? Yes.
0: Wow. Yeah. Wow.
1: He was also but I have to say he was also he was very charming. He did really he was one of the best patients I had. He it mean and when I say best patients I should qualify that meaning he was one of the most committed patients I had, which took me a while to understand why, if he thinks there's absolutely nothing wrong with him.
0: <laughs> right. Is that what happens typically with a narcissistic uh, personality disorder, um, is that they don't think there's anything wrong with them? If, right. If so, how, why do, do they wind up in therapy?
1: They usually don't wind up in therapy, and the ones that do usually end up because they're court-ordered
0: oh. to be in therapy.
1: He was a really interesting case. He was very intelligent, which actually isn't uncommon with, with NPD, but he um, and he was on the milder side of the spectrum, but he really just wanted someone to talk to, and he felt like nobody in his in his life, in his family, he called them all ghetto. He um, he felt like he had nobody intelligent to talk to, so he needed to find you know someone who was capable of understanding his very brilliant insights and mm-hmm. important things he had to say, and that's actually one of the. Criteria for for NPD narcissistic personality disorder is that you want to affiliate with people who are, in, in, people in institutions who are special and you know, um, not common, not average.
0: Wow, you know, I was talking with with uh, my therapist this last week. Um, I found this book. Um, somebody had rec- recommended a book about the narcissistic um, parent. And I went to Amazon to buy it, and I saw this other book that had gotten five stars called The Narcissistic Family. And I thought, well, that's got more stars, so I'll (laughs) buy that one. And I got it, and I got about a chapter into it, and I realized that this was a book written by therapists for therapists. And so I was like, well, I wonder if I'm wasting my time reading this. But I kept reading so many mind-blowing thing after mind-blowing thing in this book um, that I just kept reading it, and I told my therapist, and she said, "No, you know, can, can continue reading it. It, it. It's okay." But the one thing that that we started talking about was that very few people fit into the absolute spectrum of a personality disorder, and mm-hmm. and it can be really kind of counterproductive, oftentimes, to say, "I have this," or "This person is this." It the the from from what I gleaned from what we were talking about, the DSM, which is the manual that is the dictionary of what personality disorders are. um, You obviously know this. I'm telling this to my listeners. Mm -hmm. um, Is is more useful as a shorthand to describe what somebody, the traits that somebody has than A, we're putting them in this box and they're going to have this kind of regimen of of treatment. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I think... You know, I, I've gone through a lot of phases with my feelings on the DSM. To be totally honest, in in grad school and in, in the beginning of grad school, I loved it. I would li- I would read it as you know just a uh, fun reading material.
0: <laughs> I I, I you tend need to need to get out more. <laughs> this is true.
1: Uh, if you if you look at my bookshelf, I have things organized by category with like a little like a little label. So I've been someone who has always enjoyed categorization and clarity and and labeling i i will i've struggled with my own anxiety and that's been helpful and there's
0: a comfort in absolutes
1: absolutely (laughs) but um you know as as i've so but then when i started practicing when i started doing my internships i i felt like i was pathologizing everybody that somebody would come in After a really difficult breakup, maybe, you know, they would come in after these really difficult life situations. And I was looking for their diagnosis. So then I kind of went in my little anti-DSM phase. And when I started working with the high-risk youth population, I wouldn't want to diagnose anybody with anything. But my supervisor, a very brilliant man, said, it's just to help you figure out your treatment. It it, it gives you kind of a a focus, a, a focal point for treatment. So I think it has a lot of uses in terms of a place to start in treatment planning. I think for some people, knowing that there is a label to the misery they're feeling or the reason that they can't seem to hold on to any relationship is comforting. But I think that there's just as many negatives. I think that for some people it's a crutch. You know, I've, I definitely um, have encountered people who, you know, they they start off sentences with, "Well, you know, because of my bipolar disorder," and so I, I think that it it's a double edged sword.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, th- another thing that this they had in this book that I really loved was they talked about responsibility, mm-hmm. and um, you know, one of the things that that I want people to understand is we don't, hopefully, we we don't. Examine our childhood to make our parents suffer. We do it so that we can process the feelings we ran from so we can stop suffering. And this book, The Narcissistic Family, talks so eloquently about how unimportant blame is in mm-hmm. therapy. Mm-hmm. That it can really be actually a hindrance. That that it's really just about processing things that we've been afraid to feel and learning how to set boundaries and things like that. But the place where where responsibility really comes into play is realizing that we're adults now. We didn't have a responsibility as children. You know, look at that little picture of yourself when you're six years old and mm-hmm. think about the things that were that were done to you. A lot of times mm-hmm. we think of ourselves as short adults mm-hmm. and and it's so hard for us to have compassion for ourselves. But if we can have empathy for that child and realize that that child really didn't have a part in, in that stuff, we can then have that compassion. We can understand the dynamic, not necessarily to make somebody else feel shame that did it, but to go, okay, that was not my responsibility. It's to take the responsibility off of you, not necessarily to put it on somebody else and to, and to live the rest of your life angry at that person. And the important thing I'm learning is that I then have a responsibility for my own recovery. To go, I now have the facts. I now know what happened. I see my childhood in a clear light. Mm-hmm. And I can no longer play the victim because I know what my power is as an adult. I have the power to say no. I have the power to not pick up the phone when mm-hmm. this person calls. I have the power to do this. And I have the power to call my therapist and make an appointment. I have the power to go to a support group if there's an addiction that I can't control. And that is my responsibility now. Instead of staying in the past and being the victim. Even though it's so healthy to process that stuff and regress back and be that little kid and and recall those things and not suppress those emotions. This book is really helping me understand the importance of blame or lack of blame and res- the difference between responsibility as a child and responsibility as an a- as an adult. Does that make sense?
1: Well, it does. But it is a process. So Going back to the client I had and
0: you're very patient for listening to that very long, <laughs> no, very long.
1: No, I think that what you're saying is important. So, the client I had that had narcissistic personality disorder and I and I do feel a little bit bad identifying him by his disorder, but for uh, the sake of clarity, he had the and he actually took responsibility for the traumas in his childhood or maybe take responsibility isn't the right word, he wouldn't admit that anything that happened in his childhood phased him, that he was fine, that even though, you know, he, uh, he was a gay male and even though he was, um, you know, bullied mercilessly by people, by his peers, by his mother, by his family, oh, it didn't bother him, water off a duck's back. So in a way, the first phase he had to go through was kind of that regression to... You know, being upset about what had happened to him, being able to say, "Well, it did affect me, it was hurtful, and it wasn't okay, so maybe maybe it wasn't about blame, but he had to first kind of untake responsibility,
0: yes, that's it. Yeah. Untake responsibility
1: right and that and and like kind of sit in that and process that he had to allow himself to be a victim before he could regain his power. Yes. And you know sometimes the the issue of blame really hinders progress because people feel like by working through their their issues from childhood, by confronting the, you know, abusive thing that their father did to them that they're dishonoring and insulting them. So when you take blame out of it, you're able to avoid this sense of of guilt and this kind of twisted sense of loyalty that prevents people from taking an honest look at what happened
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I just lost my train of thought there's something I read in that book
1: while you think of that I have one quick little uh, side story for you that I think is so funny About narcissistic personality disorder So I, I went through a phase I was very fascinated By this disorder and the leading Expert in this disorder is this guy I think his name Is like Sam Vaknin He has narcissistic Personality disorder and you know According to him pretty severely And he's written really Interesting incredible things about the disorder He has a website that he maintains And he had this- Just
0: pictures of him though <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you, you kind of know where I'm going with this, right? So uh, I was really excited to get this new book by him. I think it was called Malignant Self-Love. I go to Barnes & Noble's to get the book. And i uh, so excited to get the new Sam Vaknin book. And I, I, it's a sad state of affairs for me, I know. But I go to the book, and it's like 70-something dollars. And I thought, how perfect that I was priced out of this book. About narcissism by a narcissist.
0: <laughs> I couldn't buy it. I was a student. I think... Is that a book that's meant for uh, therapists? It's, uh,
1: it's, it's a book that's meant for anyone who's interested oh, okay. in it and, and for people who are narcissists. Or, I think he mainly writes for people who have loved ones who are uh, narcissists.
0: Okay. Uh, the reason I ask is because this book that was... Written by therapist for therapist was pretty expensive. It was thirty five dollars for for a paperback, but I wanted it, so I ordered it anyway.
1: That's actually not that expensive for like I have a book that's also for therapists about narcissism. I think it costs about that much.
0: I guess I'm used to paying twelve bucks for paperbacks.
1: I think you know people uh, people in the I don't know, but it's it's you know textbooks any even like paper small paperback books if if they're written by people in the field for people in the field the price gets jacked up um,
0: the other thing that i that i read in this book that really really kind of blew my mind was um, the people that that grew up in invalidating environments where their parent placed their needs before themselves and and you know they they go to great lengths to say that this book isn't um, saying that your parents had to be the DSM version of a narcissist. It's just that their needs were placed ahead of yours. It's Mm -hmm. a shorthand, like Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. But they said one of the things that children, adult children of um, the narcissistic family uh, struggle with is a difficulty in placing their troubles in separate boxes with their own intensity, their own Boundaries, their own specifics. They tend to lump things all together into one anxiety. You know, um, I, you know, my car is impounded. My girlfriend is breaking up with me, and you know, um, I can't get a job interview. They, they, they tend to lump that all into I'm a piece of shit. Instead of each one maybe has its own priority, maybe each one has its own reason why something has happened, its own solution, its own intensity. And that struck me because I tend often to think of – I tend to put things in boxes in terms of their intensity instead of maybe where the responsibility lies or what the solution is or how to prioritize it Mm -hmm. and that was kind of mind-blowing to me because i think people that grow up not understanding what you're feeling Mm -hmm. where the parents needs came first feelings just kind of get thrown into one big box and you just kind of look at them by what's the most intense thing that i'm feeling right now um and it's just kind of like one big to-do list of my life is fucked instead of, well, let's just deal with this thing. Let's put that other box over there for right now. That doesn't, you know, I can look at that next month if I need to. Instead, it's just this big ball of I'm fucked. My life is over. I've blown it. I'm an idiot. My life is never going to get better.
1: You know, when you're describing, what, what you're describing makes me think of a great way to describe generalized anxiety disorder, where there's no kind of rational categorization of life stressors or upsetting things that happen. It's just, you're like immersed in this just tub of
0: wrong. Yeah. How hot, (laughs) how hot is the uncomfortable temperature today? Right. Yeah. I, I I really recommend that book, even though uh, sometimes because it's for therapists, they'll talk about, you know, the such and such model and this process. And I'll be like, I don't know what the fuck they're talking about, but, um, Let's talk about the, uh, the crisis work that you did. Mm. Um, give me some snapshots.
1: Okay, let's see some snapshots. Um, well, I would be sitting in my office, get a call from a you know, frantic mother saying, my, you know, my son is running around the house, he's saying he's going to kill himself, he um, is breaking things. I don't know what to do, you know, take some information, grab my partner, we drive out there. If we feel like there is a safety issue, we will call the police and have them meet us there. And we will talk to the mom, talk to, hopefully if we're able to, talk to the, what we call identified patient, the person who is in crisis, and figure out, do they need to be hospitalized? Do we need to, you know, maybe give them some referrals. Do we need to come up with a safety plan and kind of handle things accordingly? It it was one thing I loved about that job is there really was no typical day or typical call. So it's it's a little hard to give a snapshot, but I guess that's a, a fair day in the life.
0: I'm I'm a little shocked that the I would just always assume that any person who's talking about killing themselves, the police would would come out there and put the person in a straitjacket jacket and and. Have them put under a psychiatrist's care for thirty-six hours, or whatever the the state law was. It seventy-two. That's uh, in California. Three days. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, why is it that you guys were called, and what was what was the facility that you were working for?
1: So, we would be called. You know, a lot of times the police would be called, and I do want to make it clear that if you know somebody who is suicidal or homicidal, call the police. But sometimes we would deal with people who were kind of what we would call frequent flyers who were who were having so who were constantly in and out of the hospital whose family you know didn't want the police involved every time the police didn't want to be involved every time and you know we would deal with a lot of uh, people with um with intense you know untreated disorders and so there would continue to be this chaos and they didn't want to have, you know, the police come every time. We had a lot of people who were scared of the
0: police. Were, did you have a relationship with these people who were calling you so that they they knew who they were calling? They knew the facility? Or were these, these people calling a facility for the first time because they just found it on a list of something?
1: So we weren't a facility. Uh, you what? were
0: working out of a van. <laughs> <laughs> it was Absolutely, actually a carnival.
1: A step up from that. We were working out of bungalows in El Monte. So, you know, a, a little step up from a van we
0: um who are you authorized by the state
1: the department of mental health okay. and and in so la county and then if you go under that it's the department of mental health under that it was what's called the emergency outreach bureau okay. and that's what pmrt or people often refer to what we do as as a pet team uh, okay. so That's where we would work under. So we weren't like a facility. We would refer people to facilities, and it would be pretty much completely dependent on where there was a bed available and if they had insurance.
0: So it wasn't always get in the car and go to this person's house?
1: No, we would typically go to the... When we would get a call, most of the time, we would end up going to the house or the school or the group home or whatever. You know, there were times when we would get a call and we would be able to kind of talk through. We had, we had quite a few calls that were parents who basically their kids were misbehaving and wanted us to like come out there and, and straighten them out. So we would, you know, try to, you know, we would try to work it out on the phone so we wouldn't have to waste our resources going out there. But we would, you know, want to be on the side rather safe than sorry, especially if it was a call that involved children.
0: Like for example, um, you, you mean children that were, like, old enough to hurt themselves or hurt somebody else? M-
1: minors. We, we had a lot of calls to schools. So a kid would be kind of displaying some behavior, maybe made some threats against another kid. And, you know, there's, especially now, there's so much focus on school violence that, you know, we would all constantly be going out and evaluating whether or not that, that kid would be a threat.
0: Okay. Um, give me give me some other snapshots if you can think of it. From pet
1: team is that what you call it? So the the kind of um, we were a pet team, a psychiatric evaluation team, but the Department of Mental Health version of a pet team is called PMRT. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like uh, tissue and Kleenex, right? PMRT is gotcha. is, is Kleenex. And pet team is tissue.
0: I got gotcha. you. Okay.
1: Well, I'm trying to think of some of like the the most interesting calls, and of course, the minute that we finish this, I'm going to think of like a hundred thousand calls because mm-hmm. there were so many fascinating, fascinating ones. Some of the most interesting calls were when we would go out to see somebody who. It wasn't that they were suicidal or homicidal. It was this third category, which is called gravely disabled. So when, you know, a family member would call us to go out and see their mother because they felt that their mother could no longer take care of herself. And so one call that comes to mind was a son called us about his mother. And his mother had um, very sophisticated delusions, paranoid delusions. She felt that her neighbors were... um, were spying on her that people were walking around in you know above the the floorboards and i guess there would be ceiling boards or you know yeah. above it, on mm-hmm. the ceiling and she was living in a in a completely delusional world and um by kind of any layman's view of it you know she needs she needs help she needs to go to some kind of facility but we couldn't hospitalize her she didn't meet criteria so, those calls would be interesting and sometimes a little bit heartbreaking because there'd be a son who'd be like, I can't watch her constantly every day. I feel like um, I don't know what to do with her. She won't go see anybody. She's clearly not okay. She's clearly psychotic. And our answer would often be, Well, when she gets worse, call us.
0: Oh, that's so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, I, I feel for you and I feel for <laughs> the, the sick person and I feel for the 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 child that's I, what do you recommend for somebody who has a loved one let's say let's say it's a child and they have a parent who is under their care and the parent needs psychiatric help they need meds or whatever but the parent won't get any kind of help you know it it seems much more difficult to say co- contact with that parent well what if that parent's going to lay in their own shit and starve i mean what what do you is that too broad of a question to ask
1: no and no well i will say that they're they can lay in their own shit but if they're not going to eat and they're going to starve then we can do something so It's a question that I got asked a lot when I worked for PMRT, and I wish I had a really good answer to that. It's tough because what are your options? If you are going to make an adult do something, if you're going to take away their rights, there's a pretty high bar for what's necessary in order to justify taking away someone's rights.
0: They have to be a danger to themselves or others.
1: Exactly. And or, you know a danger to themselves by virtue of the fact that they're unable to take care of themselves, that they don't feed them. You know, I, I remember one woman who thought that all the food was poisoned and, you know, she wouldn't eat anything or drink anything. Well, Well, that would get you hospitalized.
0: So you can't commit them just because looking at them makes you sad.
1: <laughs> no. And also, you can't commit them if they're only willing to have... One cup of rice and one cup of water a day because everything else is poisoned. You can't commit them then because they're eating and they're drinking. Eating. They're drinking, so it's tough. And there's and there's some amount of of um, personal judgment that that we're afforded. So you know, so sometimes the situation is questionable, but we'll you know feel like okay, well, I think we can. I think we have enough to hospitalize them. But overall, it can be really difficult, especially when. There's paranoia When uh, Paranoid schizophrenia That makes it so complicated Because The the people Who so desperately Need medication Are paranoid About taking the medication And it's just this cycle That feels impossible
0: So what do you do When you have somebody That's delusional And they don't want To take their meds Can you have them committed Because you think They're a danger To themselves Or other people Just because They're so delusional
1: No And that's What's so frustrating for so many people in that situation, that's why the heartbreaking thing we have to say is, well, hopefully it will get bad enough that we could do something, but and, not too bad. Yeah. You know, so there's not a lot you can do and I, I think that then my concern typically goes to the the primary caregiver of that person. You know Ugh. taking care of of themselves,
0: so what would you recommend for somebody who is has somebody who's in their care that they can't commit they can't cut them loose what's a good support group w- would you recommend support group therapy both for that person to get some type of
1: absolutely I think that is one of the smartest things you can do. And, you know, besides besides the fact that it's such a unique experience to be taking care of a parent with a mental illness that's serious enough that it, it really impacts your life and but not enough where you can you know get um conservatorship or or hospitalize them that is a really unique, difficult situation so I think getting being part of a support group is excellent, and also you can learn about resources you know i you could i don 't know I, I wish I could give you off the top of my head all the different resources available to them i don't think that there are a wealth of them but
0: well there's the three things that I know off the top of my head you can call uh two one one from a landline and you can find out often uh inexpensive or free resources in your area um you can go to helpguide dot org and you can also go to nami dot org uh national alliance on mental illness um n a m i dot org and those um those are three places that I know of that um are uh where you can find stuff that especially if money is an issue
1: and two on one I'm glad you brought that up it, It's amazing how many people don't know about two one one which is really the four one one of mental health yeah and i,
0: I- and, and it actually encompasses even more than mental health It can be you know there's a dead animal that needs picking up there's this and that, but there it within that community service thing you will when you call two one one you will you can get directed to the mental health services
1: 24 right 24 hours a day and a lot of times people who would contact the the pet team would get to us through 211
0: yeah i'd never heard of it until like a year ago and i was like this is this is a word that needs to be spread also but you got to call from a landline that's the that's the other thing it, it won't work from a cell phone
1: i didn't know that yeah. actually interesting actually are you sure about that i'm it won't pretty work sure for a cell phone
0: i'm pretty sure
1: hmm um well, there is yeah. Because eight- if
0: you call four one one from your cell phone, you don't get the the information. Really? That you do from a landline. I'm pretty sure.
1: Well, I do think that there is an uh, eight hundred number associated with the two one number. So maybe yeah. if you you, should, you need to get that number. But uh, one thing I want to mention is that it's also a great place to get resources if you're homeless. Oh yeah. So yeah. So oftentimes, you know, if I when I'm out and about, I, I end up talking to you know people homeless people quite a bit and if I have nothing on me no resources I'll say call 2 and one tell them where you're at and they'll you know they'll tell you where the local shelter is and kind of what to do
0: that's good to know any uh any parting uh thoughts feelings thing you want to say to to anybody out there listening
1: that's that's a big question (laughs) it kind of reminds me of the last thing I often will say in a therapy session, is there anything that we didn't discuss today that you you want to get off your chest? Um, I I can't think of anything.
0: Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Many, many thanks to uh, Dr. Jessica Dubron. And uh, I emailed her and asked her what she's up to lately, and she is actually going to start uh, doing private practice. And I think she said um, Thousand Oaks area. And so I will put her... Um, contact info on the website for this episode. So if you want to get in touch with her and see her for therapy, you can uh, you can do that. Before I kick it off or before I go into uh, an email and some surveys, I want to remind you there's different ways that you can support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and you can make either a one-time PayPal donation or uh, become a recurring monthly donor, which means the world to me. Uh, for as little as five bucks a month, it's super easy to set up, and then once it's set up, you don't have to uh, do anything unless you want to cancel or your credit card expires. And... Um, You can also uh, support the show by shopping at Amazon through our search portal on our homepage right-hand side about halfway down. Amazon gives us a couple nickels. doesn't cost you anything. You can also support us by buying T-shirts or coffee mugs. Uh, Those links are on the homepage. And you can um, support us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good review, or spreading the word through social media. All right, let's kick it off. Here is an email I got from a listener who calls herself Mikasa, and uh, she writes, I'm so happy to be writing you from my therapist's waiting room. For the past year or so, a good friend of mine had been suggesting that I go see a therapist, but I've always insisted that my problems weren't significant. After all, I've never experienced tragedy, never been raped. Heck, I've never even been to the hospital for anything serious. I listened to your interview with Ryan Sickler right before going to my intake, and it really helped me internalize my own problems. As fucked up as it sounds, I remember uh, feeling really angry and jealous that Ryan had a supportive father and friends when he had to deal with his abusive mother. Later on, you mentioned that a lack of love is a legitimate problem. Everything just clicked. My first therapy session went really well, and I'm lucky to have found a therapist who doesn't dismiss my childhood issues as a, quote, cultural thing. Thank you so much for that this is from the shame and secret survey filled out by a uh, woman who calls herself henrietta she is um straight in her 30s raised in a stable and safe environment uh, never been sexually abused but she has been emotionally abused she writes my sister emotionally abused me my entire life unfortunately We had to share a bedroom and she would rip me to shreds in private any way she could. She was sneaky about it. I reported this to my parents, but they both worked two jobs to put us through prestigious private schools and they just didn't know how to respond except to tell me I'm not fat and to ignore her. This was the worst advice ever. It wasn't simply, you're so fat. She was much more creative than that. She would tell me I couldn't borrow her jeans because I would stretch them out or that people from school had been commenting that there is no way we could be sisters because I was such a fat pig. It is important to note that I did not even hit 100 pounds until I was 22. Clearly, I was not fat. In my brain, though, I felt fat. I felt ugly. I felt horrible, and I stopped eating. I would pass out at soccer practice from the lack of food. I couldn't even fill out a size zero, but somehow I knew I was grotesquely fat and no one would ever love me. It still affects me to this day. I am not okay with how I look, but I've been able to disassociate by just ignoring it. I haven't dealt with it. I just pretend like I'm a ghost and no one can see me. I don't look like anything. Uh, I still restrict food. I still get lightheaded and fall down a lot, but I've been able to blame it on clumsiness. I don't think I will ever have a healthy relationship with food or ever be okay with how I look, ever. Um, Any positive experiences with your abuser? My sister has turned from a troubled teen into a great mom, a PhD in psychology, a philanthropist, a volunteer, etc. She's the perfect woman now, except I know deep down she's still a horrible bitch. I think she does all of these things to cover up the shame of who she really is. I pretend to like her, but I avoid talking to her at all costs. It all feels so fake to me. While she calls me her best friend, the wisest person she has known, she tells me I'm beautiful. I smile, but I really just want to punch her face face in for all the damage she caused and for what I am still dealing with years and years after we both left home. I left before she did, got into college early so I could have an escape. I will never forgive her. You know, my thought after I read that is she's still holding, she's still holding power over you and to get into help for this is the only door out of that out of that jail that resentment will you know they say that resentment is like you taking the poison and waiting for the other person to die and um, it's hard my, my, my heart goes out to you my heart totally goes out to you mm. thank you for sharing that this is from the awful some moment survey uh, filled out by uh, someone who calls, himself, uh, she calls herself Awfulsome Seconds. She writes, A few months into a relationship, my boyfriend asked if we could talk in the car. When I got downstairs and saw him, he was sobbing and clutching a piece of paper. Naturally, I hugged him and I asked what's wrong. He handed me a piece of paper, and on it was the sweetest list of 10 reasons why he loved me. We weren't on I love you terms yet, so this was the first time the L-bomb got dropped. I figured he was being overly emotional, so I told him I loved him, too, which was true. Between sobs, he goes on to explain that he was still in love with his ex-girlfriend and was upset that he had to break up with me. Now, normally, people would just drop everything and leave at that point, but I was so confused at the time that I stuck around for the rest of the day. A few hours later, he called a group meeting with his friends, his ex-girlfriend included, and I sat around eating a bag of popcorn as he publicly declared his love for his ex. It was really fucking weird. Anyway, she rejected him, and we ended up dating for two years after that. That pretty much sums up my self worth. That is awfulsome. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Shame and Secrets survey, and it's just a, a excerpt from it. This was filled out by Jen. Uh, she's straight in her thirties, and I just want to read one thing she she wrote uh, wrote about her deepest darkest secret. I lead men on and then block their numbers when I am sick of their attention. I never let them know where I live or what I drive or anything about my personal life. I just want attention, just enough to make me feel wanted. Then I shut it away when I feel ashamed of leading someone on. I feign happiness to a lot of my friends. They don't know how truly fucked up I am, and they'd probably run away from me if they knew about my crushing loneliness and thoughts about my own death. Now, I just want to give you a hug and say that I bet most of your friends have those same thoughts and feelings. And the one thing that has brought me closer to people than anything else is getting vulnerable. But, I, you know, I don't know if your friends are safe enough to get vulnerable, but there are people who are safe enough to get vulnerable, and I had to go to a support group to find them. This is from the Happy Moment survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Titch. And... Uh, uh, I said a happy moment survey, right? Yeah. She writes, I was two days into a week-long trip to a small beach house with seven of my closest friends. It was the first time we'd all had a holiday without parents involved. This, of course, meant that we started drinking around 3 p.m. Hours passed uh, as the teenagers we were ran down to the beach in the dark. Once there, we all stripped down and went skinny dipping. It was the happiest I'd been in years, ticking something off the bucket list with all uh, of the huge people I care about laughing and screaming alongside me, this was an especially big milestone for me as a bulimic, being naked in front of people and actually enjoying myself was one of the first steps I've taken towards health. Side note: when we all finally got back to the house after our adventure, we realized it hadn't even hit 10:30 pm yet. I don't understand why that was uh, why that was included um, And because, oh, because it was so early? I don't know. I did that with a group of friends one time. Uh, I think we were like in our, like our late teens. And and a cop comes down and shines his flashlight on me. Nobody else on me. Yeah. Didn't get arrested, but... uh, I think at that time we had just taken our clothes off and I was running down the beach, twirling my underwear over my head. And uh, everybody had a good laugh about that one. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself UK girl. She is uh, 18 straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it. Oh, never reported it. Uh, She writes, I was molested by my best friend and her mother... From the ages of six to nine, children and families got involved because apparently this happened to other children who told on them. When I was questioned, I lied and said it never happened. I could never tell on my best friend and her mom. I was also too ashamed to admit that happened to me. Eight years later, I finally confided in my boyfriend and told him. Uh, She has been physically abused and she has been emotionally abused. My father would hit me from time to time, but he took his anger out more so on my mother and my younger brother. My father is very manipulative and emotionally abused me and my family for years. Um, Any positive experiences with your abusers? Yes, my sexual abuser, the mother of my best friend, was a family friend and my church small group leader from grades one to five. It made me feel confused that I was supposed to look up to her, but then she would hurt me. With my father, of course, I had several positive experiences with him. It makes me feel torn. Do I forgive him and continue to have good times together? Or do I remember what he's done to me and my family and walk away from him? You know, I think the more important question is, is how do you feel around him today? I think that's the important thing. And sh- and protecting yourself from feeling um, unsafe. That, to me, is the most important thing. Um. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Being touched in those places felt good. It makes me sick that I partially liked something that did so much harm to me. Um, you are not alone in thinking or feeling that, and that's totally normal. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets. After I was molested, I started molesting other kids my age. Thinking about it, I want to throw up and find those childhood friends and beg for forgiveness and let them know how sorry I am. I have never once told anyone that. Thank you for sharing that. Them. I'm sure that's really, really hard. To type that out, but you are not alone in that either. A lot of people um, that were fucked with as kids um, then turned around and experimented on other kids. But um, I hope you can find a, a way to forgive your forgive yourself. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you being with another female, even though I am straight and in a happy relationship with a male. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my sexual abuser that I hate her for what she did to me and that I hope she rots in hell. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for to go back? I would tell someone what happened. Um have you shared these things with others? I did once with my boyfriend. I only did because I would always stop him while we were being intimate. I would always start crying and leave. He never understood why and kept asking what was so wrong. I knew I had to tell him for the sake of our relationship. He held me while I cried and of course said he was so sorry that happened. He suggested I go see a therapist, but I said no. And I would ask you why not go see a therapist? What what would you have to lose by going to see one? Um. You know, what is the side effect of keeping this in? You know, keeping this, well, how do you feel after writing these things down? Depressed, angry, ashamed, hateful. How about going to a therapist and, and just reading your survey? What a great place to start that would be. Um, my first visit to a therapist when I was 24 was basically me reading a shame and secret survey in front of this person. And You know, a load was was lifted just from that first one. Like, okay, they're still looking me in the eye. (laughs) They don't think I'm a terrible person. So that's my suggestion. But thank you for filling that out. And I'm sorry that stuff happened to you. Just know you're not alone. This is a happy moment filled out by a a girl who calls herself, I don't even know what to call myself. She's uh, 15 She writes, my two happiest moments are, one, hearing an extract of my survey on Lindsay's podcast and now hearing feedback, Uh, I guess she means um, uh, Lindsay's episode, Uh, to the person that related with me, you helped me decide to not jump into the flooded river to my right Uh, I'm walking into town to meet friends, to tell them about the podcast. I really want to say thank you to both of you. I'm so grateful, and I'm just so happy to know someone else is going through it. I have one thing to ask of you, Paul. If you're running out of things to say on your next few podcasts, please, please, please read more of the surveys I've taken because I really want to help more people. It's like killing two birds with one stone. I'm helping myself by helping others. Stay strong, everyone, and thank you that's beautiful. You know, whenever I have a down day, I get a I I get a a survey or an email like that where somebody turns from the darkness and walks towards the light and um I still nap, but my naps just a little bit shorter. It's about 5 minutes shorter. Um this is just an excerpt from a Shame and Secrets filled out by a guy who calls himself Dingo Dad and uh what if anything do you wish for? I want someone to understand me. I've been abused, betrayed, rejected, and abandoned by so many people in my life that I don't open up to anyone. I want one person to understand me and love me for who I am, uh, even if I am uh, if I am even lovable. Oh, I just want to give you a hug. And I hope that hug isn't cheapened by the previous hugs I've given out. But... Um, oh, buddy... How about going to the on the forum and getting a little love there? Hmm? How about trying that? How about checking out a support group? Man, I get so much love in my support groups. So much love. This is from Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Dixie Cup. She is straight in her twenties. Raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, she writes, I think I turned out great on paper, so it could so it could just be awful-some, question mark. Um, some, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I never realized before listening to your show that what happened to me was sexual abuse. Growing up, my father would say little things here and there that always made me uncomfortable, whether it was commenting on my body, about how I had a nice butt and legs, but no breasts. To make up a funny rhyme about how my boyfriend would probably finger me, wow, I would always get visibly uncomfortable, but my dad would laugh it off like we were best friends. He was the, quote, cool dad to my friends. Nothing was off limits. He sold drugs in front of me and even bought me and my best friends beer for our parties. One night, I could hear him having loud sex with one of his girlfriends. I banged on the door, disgusted, telling them to stop. I could hear them laughing inside. It didn't stop. Uh, I told my dad how inappropriate it was that his, at the time, 16-year-old daughter could hear that. He just mentioned that he could also hear me and my boyfriend, and it made him mad too. Oh, wow. First date I had with my now husband, my dad commented to to him that he should try to get me drunk so I could give him road head. Wow. I'm sure I could think of more things, but why would I? I don't want to be this person, this person that this happened to. He makes it seem like a big deal, uh, and everyone just laughs it off, Um, especially him, when I tell him it bothers me. I don't think my dad would ever have or even wanted to try to touch me. I don't know what he was trying to do. Is this sexual abuse? My mother left our family when I was a teenager, but before that I remember telling her about an incident in the park where a man asked me, I think I was around nine or 10, to have sex with him. I watched her put on makeup and she barely reacted. Other things I have told her she just brushes off. So I just realized that no one is going to protect me except for myself. I could go on, but honestly, this is my first time confronting this in my head or thinking these things out loud and I'm getting emotional as you as you should the, th- those are fucking heavy things man that is you know and it's not about our bodies or our genitals it's about somebody dismissing who we are as human beings you know treating us like an object that's it that fucking hurts it fucking hurts but there is healing from it there can be healing from it um Uh, Any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes, I do care about my father. He was always supporting me academically and through my school and sports activities. He was a proud dad. I'll always appreciate that. Yeah, well, you know, that's part of his fucking job too. Um, So I wouldn't feel like he did you a favor. You know, parents are supposed to do that. When When I start to think about the stuff that my mom did to me and then the other part of my brain goes, but you know, she bought you clothes and she did, yeah, well, fucking parents are... Obligated to do those things for you. They're obligated to cook and clothe you. And, um, you know, they don't do that stuff as a favor to you. They chose to bring you into the world. Right. Deepest, darkest thoughts. Sometimes I just want my dad to die so I don't have to deal with him anymore. Uh, I don't relate to that. I also feel like there are a lot of similarities between my father and my husband, and I fear one day I will end up resenting him like I do my father. I fantasize about running away from everyone and just starting over somewhere where no one knows me. Sometimes I feel stuck in the life that I have, but I know that I do have it good and shouldn't be complaining. You know, there's a difference between processing your pain and being a whiner, and you are not whining. You have pain. You have pain. You were abused. You were sexually abused. Your father sexualized you. And um, one of the things when you're raised with a narcissistic parent like you were is that you struggle with um, black and white thinking. You know, it's like I either need to just suck it up and be around him or I need to, you know, divorce my husband and move out of town and find another life. And therapy really helps with you. in support groups to find the gray area where we should live um where life is deepest darkest secrets i feel like i am never fully letting my guard down with anyone i always feel ashamed to have to hide things i uh, want to see a therapist but i don't know where to find the time i fear that people will see me as i see myself even though i am told i'm very pretty i still do not see anything special What little beauty I do see, I'm afraid will fade with age and I will be nothing else but the empty shell of a housewife I see on reality TV. Mm. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't? To myself, you're going to be fucking okay. You don't need to fix everything and you need to stop beating yourself up for being a fucking human. Bad things happen and good things happen. That's how the round world rolls. Just lace your boots up and keep going. You don't have to feel guilty about every feeling you have. To everyone listening to this, I am holding back and I am sorry. I hope I can even be more honest one day. I think everybody listening to this is rooting for you. Really, really rooting for you. I'm against you, but they're rooting for you. Of course, I'm kidding. Um... Yeah, I hope you take that 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 step and go to therapy. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Pink Martini and I just wanted to read two excerpts from this. Um Darkest thoughts. I would love to know what it's like to be in an intimate relationship with a woman. I was once in a cab with a female friend in college and we were really drunk and we kissed. It was so good, we did it again. It was the best kiss ever. I don't really like sex. I like kissing and affection, but not sex. I hate that I cannot be affectionate to my husband without it leading to sex. I think men are gross animals, but I have never identified as anything but straight. I have a bit of a girl crush on my female dance teacher. I wish my husband would just move out one day and disappear from my life so I could start over. I worry that people will think I'm weird and I will be rejected. I worry that I will never have a loving, intimate relationship with someone who is not a total fuck-up. I worry that I will never have the freedom and space to express myself, and I so desperately want that. Darkest Secrets. I cheated on my husband with other people when we were in a relationship but not yet married. I don't want anyone to know about it, but I also don't feel the least bit guilty about it. I would do it now if the opportunity presented itself. I think he is the smartest idiot I know. That is, that is such a great sentence. I often go in our spare bedroom and masturbate after he falls asleep. I also do it when he's mowing the lawn. I hate having sex with him. It is awkward and weird, and the only time I've ever enjoyed it is when I've taken an Ambien and had a few drinks. He literally doesn't even know where to put his dick. I have to stick it in myself. After that, he basically jerks off inside me with his eyes clamped shut. I've never had an orgasm um, while having sex. Hmm. and there was um her survey was pretty long and so i didn't read the, the the stuff um but there was a lot of stuff with uh with her dad and um you know she writes my dad was a textbook narcissist and my mom was his enabler um just know you're not alone no you are not alone and you know every person who's whose survey i read on on this podcast there's so many people that that are rooting for you. I just hate. I hate seeing all the, I know pain is a part of life, but I just, it kills me sometimes to see how many people are stuck and afraid to reach for that, that life raft that is just going back and forth in front of them. You know, somebody said something really profound at at my support group tonight. They said, don't judge the solution offered to you when you're stuck in the problem. And I agree, I would be dead if I had judged the solution to my alcoholism, addiction, and depression. I would absolutely. Um, This is from the uh, Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself the werewolf. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? She was smart, talented, but sadly weak in her own self. How does writing that make you feel? Like I am almost writing the truth. I know that it is irrational and against my religious beliefs, but it continues to overpower me. Uh, if you could use a time machine, how would you use it? I would never have looked at porn when I was a kid and messed up my life and others. I wasn't old enough to know the purpose of what it was for. I hate myself. I hate everything about myself. I try to be a better person and I love people, but... Um, But how can I just erase it, stamp it out of my mind? Um, I'm supposed to feel happy that I won a scholarship, but I don't. I feel unworthy. I'm supposed to feel content about my life, but I don't. I feel ashamed. How does writing that make you feel? Disgusting. I feel like my mind is plagued by horrific thoughts. You think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes, of course I am. I have everything that I could possibly need or want in my life. It depresses me. Well, maybe materially you do. But it sounds like you you have, um, uh, you don't have self love, and that's the most important thing in the world. So you should be depressed. You know, somebody who doesn't have the the result of lack of self love. How can it not be depression or anger, you know, or sadness or hopelessness? Um, Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Why would it? Negative people together aren't the happiest of crowds. So why should I feel relieved? So why should I feel relieved? Uh, It is my soul that I worry for. It is that pain that I feel when I am alone and thinking back on my life. Um, You know, it sounds like there was some type of trauma around pornography as a child. And um, I don't know what the thoughts are that are in your head, but it sounds like you... Have a strict religious—I um, don't know what you want to call it—belief system, and I just get the feeling from reading that that there is some dichotomy between what is being tr- preached in your strict church and what you feel, and um, and I would I would talk to somebody about that because God, my hunch is is that you're not a bad person, and. And you're uncomfortable with your sexuality because maybe your religion has a stick up its ass. Huh, how's that for de- how's that for delicate diplomatic phrasing? <laughs> uh, I just wanted to read this excerpt of this person from the "Shouldn't Feel This Way" survey and. Um, how do you feel about writing what you've written? Bittersweet. I'm definitely not afraid of death, but I'm terrified of dying before people truly know who I am. Man, that one hit me like a like a foot right in my chest. Um That is an intensely fear uh deep fear of mine but i got to say doing this podcast probably that probably transformed into my fear is that people know too much about me and that i'm a fucking exhibitionist um but i think everybody is afraid that we're going to we're going to live life on this planet and and we won't have lived it fully or been known fully and i can tell you you can you can find people that will know you and love you They're just not always easy to find. It's not convenient, and it's really hard to do it sitting in your fucking recliner. Um, This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Titch. Oh, she was on a previous survey, and she writes, When I was 16, my grandfather was diagnosed with stomach cancer. There are five grandchildren, myself included, and we weren't informal And we weren't informed until the last minute. The whole family went to visit him in recovery. We're all sitting around his room while my auntie tries to talk her away uh, out of feeling uncomfortable. Uh, He's sitting in his backless gown, trying to calm her down and untangle himself from all the tubes at the same time. The nurse comes in and gives him a shot. And just as she leaves, my cousin leans over to me, pauses for a moment before whispering, I saw granddad's ball sack. She wasn't as quiet as she thought, and everyone heard and instantly started laughing, including the nurse. Ah, <laughs> uh, how do you not love anything that involves <laughs> granddad's ball sack? Well, actually, there's quite a few things that could involve granddad's ball sack in a group setting. Um And finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Red Velvet. Uh, She writes, While waiting for a prescription to be filled the other day, I wandered around the pharmacy browsing little luxury items I couldn't really afford. I picked up a tin of fancy, expensive, solid soap, opened and smelled it, and all of a sudden was flooded with vivid memories. Being 10 years old on midwinter vacation on a trip to my friend's father's house in Vermont a huge, beautiful, wood Victorian house surrounded by tall, snowy trees on the edge of a lake, going to the Vermont country store and buying penny candy and playing with antique toys, watching the gods must be crazy and finding it boring, using an electric blanket for the first time and wanting to take it home, the perfect tiles of the kitchen and the way the wooden stairs creaked when my tiny body tiptoed up them, all from one whiff of soap. It made my throat catch. After my next paycheck came in, I immediately went and bought it because recovering memories like that is well worth $12. That might be my favorite happy moment ever. That was like a little movie. Boy, what a what a way with words. and And God, that was just poetic. That was just fucking poetic. And then I ruined it by using the word fucking. I'm over my quota. I'm taking that back. And I'm going to add another fucking, fucking, fucking. What do you think of that? How's that to wrap up the show? Suck on that. Uh, now I overdid it. Taking it back. Suck it, suck it. Suck it, fuck it. I kind of want to end it on that. But now I can't because I spoke up. Uh, if you're listening to this, A, you're never listening again. And B, I hope you're feeling less alone because you are not. You are most definitely not alone. We're a big, happy, crazy family, and uh, let's remember we got each other. And um, join that forum. Let people get to know you. And remember, there is hope if you can just get out of your shell. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some some weird weird way.